Welcome to the Glory Podcast. We're so glad that you're listening. Our mission is to declare God's glory. Please visit glorychurchkc.com to hear all of our other messages. I'm going to preach from the ground today because uh, I like being able to move a little bit more. And this is a little shaky when you walk on it. But good morning. My name is Greg McKinney, and uh, my wife and I are the lead pastors here at Glory Church. And thank you so much for being here. We are in week two, as uh, Colin had said, we are in week two of a brand new series over the book of Daniel. And I do not know if you have read much of the book of Daniel, but it is a powerful, powerful collection of stories of boldness, of faith, and courage. And so that's what we've been praying over our time together is that we would um, learn a courage, a bravery that is, uh, is real, stands true, stands the test of time. Last week, many of us, myself included, were out and down with the flu, um, which was not fun. Um, if it, you have been hit with the flu this year, it is not fun at all. And uh, round two happened in my home this week, so I am still not 100%, so do give me grace as I chew on this cough drop and uh, try to teach, all right? Um, But I'm so excited. Uh, We are in week two of of the series, and if you were here this past week or not, know that each and every week we actually have them recorded. So if you miss a Sunday morning, you can always pick up. Um, and we, we try to have them out on Monday on our website, uh, glorychurchkc.com, and you can find our messages. And so that is a, a great way, if you missed week one, to get back in it. But we talked last week about this reminder that uh, we are called to each and every day live a, a life of bravery that is apart from what we called uh, situational bravery. If you're with us, situational bravery is uh, that kind of thing when, when you and I feel confident in doing the things that we are confident doing. Situational bravery is, is when you and I step into roles that we are competent in and never really leave that comfort. Situational bravery uh, sort, sort of creates a... Uh, a fortress of our own strength and courage, and uh, we like to live there for a while, but situational bravery has nothing to do with faith, because when we are in those places of comfort, we actually never step into anything outside of what we can handle on our own. And so the whole book of Daniel will always push us. The whole book is just a show, showcasing uh, God's people having to get out of their situational bravery. And so we talked this past week that when God wants to teach us a bravery apart from situations, he will allow our comfort to crumble. And I told you how very personal that was for me this past week because uh, I'm going to tell you I'm, I'm very confident in my ability to, to teach. I'm very confident in my ability to, uh, to, to read and study and prepare. But what is um, crumbling was um, this past week when, when the flu round two came. And, and you know, uh, I can't stand on my charisma alone up here. I have to rely. And so often God realizes that, that we are in a place where our confidence or our courage is sold, solely found upon us. And he will allow our comfort to crumble. Because he wants to teach us something that stands true. Uh, He wants to teach us something that is enduring. And so that's exactly what happened uh, to the Israelites. If you you remember what we talked about this past week was that there was this one day when God allowed 
Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon to come in and besiege all of Jerusalem and instantly their high horse crumbled. Instantly their courage, all, all that they've been banking on, all of their, all of their financial uh, all their financial success, all of their satisfaction, all of their provisions, all of their strength, all of their army's power instantly just crumbled because God wanted to show them, you are relying way too much on your strength than me. And so he allowed their comfort to crumble. And I'm going to tell you, he tries to do this more often than not in our lives. But we here in America are so quick to leaning on our own courage, so quick to leaning on our own power, our own strength. And I will tell you that is not faith at all. And so this morning we're going to learn something, and it's going to be seen again and again and again in the book of Daniel, but it's this, that faith does not always feel like faith. Faith does not always feel like faith. And in fact, faith is sometimes really stretching. Faith is sometimes very hard. Faith is sometimes very painful. Faith can sometimes lead you to, to do things that you feel are, you're lonely in. Um, faith can sometimes make you feel very stretched, very alone, very confused at times. And, but we like to think that faith has this like bubbly feeling to it. And there are good times, right? There are joyous times. But more often than not, faith is stretching and pressing and pushing and compelling and that is something that we are going to dive into because there's the faith of these four men in the first chapter of Daniel that I'm going to tell you it did not feel like faith as they went against the grain of the culture. Uh, it did not feel like faith as they had to trust, um, but it was faith. And so we're going we're gonna to open up. There will be the passages up there, but if you have a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to open up to chapter 1 of Daniel and dive right in. Uh, you will realize that the first three verses we covered last week, and it's just a little reminder of the, the setting, the scene, um, but I'm ready to dive into this. We got just are going into just seven verses, all right, and then we're going to dive into it. Um, but will you pray with me as we get into this? God, I pray right now that you would remind us. You would remind us that faith does not always feel like faith. And in fact, many of us are in a place where our, our, our comfort has been crumbling for a while because you want to get us out of our passivity. You want to get us out of our, our, our comfortable state of relying on ourselves. And so God, forgive us from all of that from the past where we've relied on our strength, our courage, our abilities, our gifts, our talents, apart from your power. And so God, teach us from your word this morning in your name. Amen. So scripture says that in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. And these he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight and competent to serve in the king's palace. And they were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of royal rations of food and wine, and they were to be educated for three years. So that at the end of the time there, 
They would be stationed in the king's court. And among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. And the palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So we will ask this question again and again. What do you do when you find yourself living in a culture that is not of your own? In fact, that is something that is going on in this. What do you do when you wake up and you find yourself in a culture that is not of your own? In fact, this is an open window now to seeing an ongoing metaphor at work in Daniel. The book of Daniel is this ongoing metaphor of Babylon being the kingdom of this world and Nebuchadnezzar, its king, being the ruler of the world. Given other names like uh, the father of lies, the accuser, uh, Satan, Lucifer. In fact, there's this ongoing metaphor of Babylon being the world and Nebuchadnezzar being our enemy. And we will see it displayed again and again for we like Israel find ourselves living in a culture that is not of our own, ruled and dictated by a Lord that we do not submit to. But at the same time, just like our enemy, Nebuchadnezzar approaches the Israelites with this master plan of overruling them and reculturing them. He wants to change and rewrite their heritage, and so we see the king calling his, his palace master, and he wants to take all of the powerful nobility, all of the young men who, who, are, who are able out of Israel, in other words, all the respected ones, all the ones who had means, talents, all the ones who had the abilities. He wanted to get all of the ones that had potential, the ones who already knew too much, and he wanted to remove them from their homes. In fact, in creating this literal separation between these noble, noble men and their homes, Nebuchadnezzar secured a couple things. He knew that without their families, the long line of faith stories in Israel would be quickly forgotten. Nebuchadnezzar knew that without their families, these young men would no longer have their support system, and so they'd have to rely on a new support system. Nebuchadnezzar knew also that without their young men, Israel would never be able to gain the power and the provision to overrule Babylon again. And so Nebuchadnezzar does something very sinister, very cruel, very deceptive, but oh, so strategically wise. He takes the powerful men the ones who were able, the ones who had the abilities, and he removes them from their homes. And in his palace, he taught them a new way. In his palace, they were ripe and naive, and their minds soaked up his literature, his way of life, his way of thinking. And in his palace, he protected them. In his palace, he gave them a new sense of comfort and security and stability. And much like our enemy, Nebuchadnezzar knew a couple things that without doing this, Israel would regain control and power and overcome Babylon. And so he knew, I am afraid of the power of Jerusalem, so I need to take their strong men and reculture them, reteach them, reteach them. And in fearing their future power and unity, he sought a different way. He even went as far as renaming them. It says that, that to Daniel, they named uh, Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Ezariah Abednego. And though we'll come back to this in later weeks, like 
do not overlook how big of a claim that is to take someone's name and rename them. In fact, in the Israel community, like a name was huge. It was a, it was a calling. A name had this huge uh, power onto what someone was called to do, who they were at their core, and instantly they were renamed. All the men, all the young men who came into the palace were given a new name. And when we lose who we are, we quickly forget whose we are. And he knew that. Nebuchadnezzar knew that. If I rename them, I can get them further and further and further from their culture. And then they'll start taking ownership of my culture. And when I rename them, they're going to forget who they were. And now they'll know that they're mine. And I'm going to tell you, this is a nasty thing that our enemy does to us still to this day. Because he knew if they forgot who they were, they would quickly forget whose they were. But it makes me wonder, how unstoppable would the church be if we would become aware of the reculturing efforts by the enemy and actually fought against them? How unstoppable would our church be for all around us are our constant lessons of, of how we should act, lessons of who we should be, lessons of what is, is manly or beautiful or satisfying, lessons all around us that reculture what we should give our time to, what we should put our energy to, who we are and how we should act, what is fitting, what is normal, what is fitting for the age we are. And over and over and over, a word is spoken that is contrary to our culture, Contrary to God's word, yet again and again and again, this reculturing is happening. Labels of low self-worth, labels uh, and titles given to us to take ownership in a different way. I mean, how many things do we take ownership of in our life that actually get us too busy to do the things that we're called to do? Yet this enemy, this enemy knows what he's doing. If he can distract us from who we are, he can distract us from whose we are. And as we start taking on ownership in this world, when we forget the tie that it has to the kingdom of God, then we can quickly forget, we can quickly forget our calling, our name, our God. And so I'm reminded quickly of how I get into this. Goodness, all over social media and life in general is a way of life. Even in my line of, of business, right, uh, there's a way of life that looks more attractive, uh, looks more uh, enjoyable. In fact, it, being a pastor is awesome, and I love it, but it's also hard, and the enemy knows this. And so all over social media are, are pastors and churches who, who it looks like their life is a little bit more enjoyable, right? We're all there. We get that. Uh, there, there's always someone who's in your stage, your season, doing the same business like route as you. And for some reason on social media, their life always appears more enjoyable than yours. And we can get into this habit of looking at that and quickly our soul begins to deteriorate because we, we, we put on this that that is how life should be and that's how we should be living. And I, I wrote this down that though we recognize our differences, we begin to crave that life. But in our comparison, something happens. We quickly prescribe onto their supposed success uh, a list of actions and behaviors and choices that we need to make in order to have that too. 
And when given time, those thoughts become obsessive. Uh, Those actions begin to be alluring and tempting. And we just think, if I just do this, live like this, make decisions like that, finish this, pursue that, then my end success will look like their current one. And we all do that. But how unstoppable would the church be if we stopped looking at the success of others as guides to fix our unhappiness? How unstoppable would the church be if we stopped looking at the success of others as if it would heal our doubt, as if it would heal our fears, our worries, our insecurities? I will tell you that the the success of this world, Nebuchadnezzar does not have the answers. He doesn't have the answers. But we all get in this habit of believing that this world can provide us the success that our God has already claimed over us. I wonder how many of our daily actions, beliefs, and choices are prescribed to us not by God, but by the supposed success of the world, by the supposed success of another. If you're taking notes, write this down. A daring faith chooses the right thing, whether there's a success attached to it or not. And there's four men, and there's four men in in this story who chose the right thing, whether there was success attached to it or not. There were four men who chose the right thing, not knowing what the end result would be. They just knew who they were. And so they chose the right thing. And it's often hard to recognize because the people that we strive to be like sometimes are genuinely good people, right? We, we, we want to be godly in character and we, we often point out other people and begin to believe that, that if I just did what they did, then I will be like them. But when we try to pursue a life, and I wrote this down, when we try to pursue a life of fruitful success without pursuing the path prescribed to us by God, we will always start looking more like the world than the people who we even look up to because we're trying to manufacture their fruit in us. And this is not what we should be doing. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar knew if I got them to, if I get them to believe in my way of thinking, then I can reculture them and they'll believe that success in my court is found in this way. But God's people, success is not found in that way. Success is found in Christ and and in following and doing the right thing at the right time as God has deemed right for us. But too often we do a lot more God, we do a lot more uh, world searching than God seeking. Write that down. We do a lot more world searching than God seeking. When we want answers to something, we seek the world a lot as if that should prescribe us the answer and this is the constant reculturing that our enemy wants us to do is to look for the world, the, the needs, the answers that, that, that he can provide. Because if, if we start looking to him, we will start believing that our comfort is found in here, in this world, our security, our stability. Because Nebuchadnezzar had all the answers for them. He had all the food that they needed. He had all the strength. He had all the courage to provide them. He had all the ability to, for them to regain strength. Uh, he, he fed their bellies. He fed their minds. And we can quickly do a whole lot of world searching instead of God seeking. But I wrote this down, that fruit cannot be given to us by the world. Fruit is not the end result of man's ways. And one man's fruit cannot be duplicated for another we got to always do the right thing at the right time as God has deemed right.
for us. And in doing the right thing, crazy things happen. And the story, uh, in this morning's text, there are four men who do the right thing. And at the end of chapter one, if you've ever read it, uh, we're not going to get all the way into it. But there is a moment when Daniel asks the palace master, who has renamed them. And Daniel asks if he could test, if he could, he could just test him. Uh, because Daniel knew the, this, this noble food, this royal rations of, of food and wine, it's not going to be fitting for what God has required of us as his people. And so he asks him, he says, please test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given, us as in the, the four men, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And you can compare our appearance with the appearance of the other young men who eat the royal rations. And deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and he tested them for 10 days. And it says that at the end of the 10 days, it was observed that they were better. They appeared better and fatter, stronger than all the other young men who had been eating the royal rashing. So the, the guard continued this. And at the end of the three years, scripture says at that end of chapter one, that Nebuchadnezzar noticed that these four men were 10 times better than anyone else in his kingdom. And he is dumbfounded by it. He is amazed because when you do the right thing at the right time as God has deemed right, favor happens and provision in a very weird way, in a very powerful and crazy way. But I will tell you, it did not feel like faith at day nine when they were wondering if they could keep eating these vegetables instead of the meat that looked really good. It did not feel like faith as they continued to do what they knew was right versus what looked right in the kingdom. And I'll tell you, Nebuchadnezzar's food probably looked pretty right. And so it says, that they were 10 times better, but how did they do it? In a culture of expectations, of pressures, of all these uncontrollable variables, how did they stay confident, brave? I will tell you, there are seven simple words, and in fact, I think it's the most powerful verse in this whole chapter. It is verse, uh, verse 8. Yes, it says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And this is right before he asks the palace master to test him. Scripture just has this pause. There's this renaming that happens, and then it says, but Daniel. Notice every other time that his friends are named, they are named forever by their now Babylon name, but Daniel never is named Belshazzar. It's, it's instantly, he, it's, it's crazy. It's always Daniel. And I love that right after they name him Belshazzar, it says, but Daniel resolved. He resolved. This is a very unfamiliar word to us, but, but it means that to put in place, to establish within. It, it means to pledge inwardly. In other words, that as this selection was happening and Daniel started noticing all of these young men being taken from their home, he knew something. He knew, God, if I am without you, I will perish. He knew, God, I need your teaching. I need your, 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 your lessons. I need your, your, your heritage. God, I need to remember your stories. God, I need your power and strength. And I need to remember that you are more powerful than Babylon will ever be. And so he makes this inward resolve to not defile himself. That is how he's able to do it. We like to look at it as if it just happened in the moment. No, it happened long before. It happened long before he asked the palace master if he could be tested. It happened long before he resolved to not defile himself. I can imagine his thought process. God, I need you. I need you. 
I need your understanding, your help, your strength. I, need, I will not forget what you have done. I need you. And so deep within, he places this resolve that he would not forsake his culture. So he makes this inward pledge, and then he brings it outward. He brings it outward and makes it known to the, the palace guard. I will tell you that the reason why you and I are so quick to compromise it's because we're slow to speak out our resolves. We have it in, in our mind that we want, to be, we want to live differently. We have it in our mind that we want a life of, of, uh, of faith and boldness, but we don't speak it. Can I ask, do, do your, does your family know that you want to live differently? Do you voice it? Have you voiced your resolve? Have you voiced this pledge that you will have a different home, that, that you will have a different relationship with this, the, the people? Have you, have you voiced it at your, your job? Do they know why you do what you do? We, we are quick to thinking it. We have these good intentions, but we have no convictions that turn them into words. And so, so they're never spoken. And so then we quickly compromise. We have these plans to live differently, but no heart change. We're still looking at the way that we've always looked at. We're still measuring growth with the same ruler that we've always measured growth with. We're still comparing, still operating with the same perspective. But I will tell you, a daring life is built on a resolve. A daring life is built on a resolve that I will not defile myself with that thinking. I will, I will live with integrity. I will live differently of resolve. I'll tell you that this past week, um, I was reminded of a resolve that Kate and I had um, when starting church planting. So Glory Church is a church plant, which I will tell you is a hard thing to do. Uh, church planting is not for the young, uh, the, the young in faith, um, and it is stretching goodness. Um, but I will tell you at the very beginning of, of it all, uh, there's a lot of different voices that come into play. There's a lot of different ways. Those of you who maybe this is your first time of being in a church that is a new church, there are a lot of organizations that come alongside and train and teach. But I knew God put this resolve in, in mine and Kate's heart that we would be different in church planting. In fact, there's a whole lot of um, a whole lot of voices of how we should spend money, of how we should live, of how we should operate, of how we should leave, of how lead, of of how we should build a team, of what we should be spending our time doing. And I knew that there would be a lot of voices that would pull us into different directions. But I knew at the end of the day, I see a city changed by homes that are changed. So we will be we will be a church that are in, that is in the community, and that sometimes means. That, that we won't spend the money that, that other churches do money for a day when my neighbor could not wrap my mind around um, spending a whole lot of money for a day when my neighbors don't have money to put food on their plates. And so I just couldn't. And so we knew when stepping into church planting that, that there was this resolve. And it's not that those things are bad, but I knew that the calling that God had for my family meant that we needed to be a little bit strong in what our vision was, what, our, what we knew that, that God was leading us to do. And I will tell you, it's not bad the things that, that are going on around you, but I will tell you, it is not right for you because that's not your resolve. You know, there, there's maybe some good things that are going around you that you could take, take time in, but they're not the right thing at the right time as God has deemed right for us. And so what is your resolve 
What is this inward pledge that, that you could speak into your marriage, that you could speak into your job, that, that, that has to do with that proverbial ladder of success that, that, that everyone around you keeps climbing, but you are pledging inwardly, I will not defile myself. I will not live like that. Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to, to your word. And with my whole heart, I seek you. I will tell you, we like to guard our path according to a lot of other things, according to what is successful. We like to guard our path uh, according to, to what Google says or, or according to what uh, social media says. We, we do a lot of things according to other things, other voices, other wisdom. But how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding and according to God's word. God's word. And so as we end this, I'm, I'm just going to challenge you, encourage you. Do what Daniel did and put a test on it. So let's say you have yet to, to voice that resolve. I would encourage you, if you're taking notes, write it down. What is that resolve that, that I will live with integrity in this? I will have integrity here. And then test your flesh. In other words, what in 10 days could, could, you, could you accomplish just by saying, I will not think like that? Maybe it means for 10 days you need to be off of social media and you just say, I'm going to watch my thinking because, because what I've been putting into my mind has been, been putting me with all these comparisons. And so for 10 days, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to work on my prayer life. For 10 days, I'm going to work. I'm going to become a student of the word again. And so I'm going to test my flesh. And in 10 days, if I am more strong in, my, in my, my faith versus my fears, if I am more, more courageous, more bold, then I'm going to keep this up. If in 10 days I am more strong, if I am stronger than I was before, then I will keep this up. Test your flesh. What do you resolve? What are you pledging inwardly? And then how can you speak it out? How can you speak it out? Who needs to know that you're pledging? Who needs to know that, 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 that you will live with integrity? Because I'll tell you, we like to not tell people who need to know. And often it's because we, we, we don't want them to, uh, to look down on us when we struggle. But there are people all around you. That palace guard needed to know that I, I will not defile myself. There are people in your life that need to know what your, your resolve is so that you can live with accountability because of it. Thanks for listening to the Glory Podcast. For more information about this message or Glory Church, please visit glorychurchkc.com.